Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to 2 Kings. You can just stay there in chapter 1. So on Thursday this week, I'm, uh, I'm running and, and I'm thinking about the text. And I, uh, I said to the Lord, I said, uh, Father, I don't know why I can't get this off my mind. I'm not preaching this for another 10 days. Why can't I stop thinking about this text? Um, it's going to be a long 10 days if I have to wait to preach this text that long. Later that afternoon, Thursday afternoon, Chad and I are praying together. Richard is with us and Chad was praying for me. And one of the things he prayed for me is the Lord would help me as I prepare to preach this Sunday. And uh, we finished praying and I checked my calendar and I was preaching this Sunday, not next Sunday. So um, I... Uh, a couple of things there. That was an immediate answer to prayer. There's probably no better way the Lord could have helped me prepare for Sunday to get prepared than to hear the prayer you're preaching this Sunday. Um, and also, it was kind of the Lord to put the text on my mind so early. Um, I was laughing too later. I thought, I prayed, Lord. Why can't I get this off my mind? I can't wait 10 days to preach this. And the Lord's response is, oh, don't worry, you're not. You've got about two and a half. So anyway, um, here we are together. I am excited about Second Kings. Uh, it's such an interesting book, especially these chapters we're going to look at together. Um, if you've been walking with us through this journey, it's only been actually a couple of months. It might feel to you like decades, uh, but it's actually been a couple of months since we uh, went off uh, from uh, beginning all the way in Genesis. And we're trying to move our way through the Old Testament, what we're considering like a high level um, uh, look at it, to get an idea what is the redemptive story of the Old Testament? What is it we believe about the Old Testament? What is it that it's there for um, and so as we've marched through that, you we've marched through God creating, we've marched through the fall, we've marched through Noah and, and then Abraham. When God calls out a people and promises a nation, we've watched the nation come out of slavery in Egypt. And then we've watched as they were given a law. We've watched as they've turned away from God. We watched as God was merciful and still brought them into the land and conquered all the nations around them. We watched as they asked for a king and God was willing to give them a king. Even their stubborn hearts wanted it after He warned them against it. We watched as they got David as king. We watched as Solomon. And the last time... Uh, that I preached, we looked at first kings and we watched as the kingdom divided. So now we have a north, that's Israel, capital Samaria. We have a south, that's Judah, um, and the capital Jerusalem where the temple is. Uh, and now we land here in this text in Second Kings. Before we begin, let me pray for us and just ask that God would help as His Word is preached. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we do just come around your word. Lord, we trust that this is your word. We trust in as much as we hear from it, we hear from you. And Lord, I ask that this text written so many years ago, Lord, I ask that you would use this 
this spoken word, Lord, to bring fruit for your kingdom even now. Lord, we need you as much as the nation of Israel needed you. We are tempted just like they were to merely call you by name and not bank our trust in you. To look at your word as that thing which we can manage and to stubbornly reject you. Father, we need help. We need the help that comes through Christ. And so I pray that through this text, through this time together this morning, that Lord, You would grow us, that You would unite us around Christ. We pray all these things. We ask these to You, Father. We ask them through the name of Jesus, Your Son, that now by Your Spirit, You would build and make Your church through Your Word. Amen. Um, well, go ahead there and look in Second in, uh, Kings uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin there. And as we march through, here's, here's what we're going to do. First thing I'm going to do is march you through, big picture, 14 chapters of Second Kings. Real big picture, high level. Then we're going to come back and talk about what observations can we make and, and how does this fit into the redemptive story. So there in Second Kings chapter 1... Uh, we are going to look at verses 1 through 3 together. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. So you remember Ahab, he's the really bad king of, uh, of Israel, who at the very end of 1 Kings had a, even God shows that even Ahab can repent. He repented, but left a horrible legacy and, and introduced by his wife Jezebel, introduced Baal worship into the land of Israel. Well, one of the things that had happened was they had subdued the Moabites. Well, now the Moabites, it's saying, are no longer feeling so subdued. So after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. Ahaziah is the king in Israel. And he lay sick. So he sent his messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub. So that's, that's Baal. The god of Ekron. Whether I shall recover from this sickness... So go ask Baal if I'm going to recover. I hope you see how wicked this is. King of Israel, go and ask Baal if he's going to recover. But the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, so he asked him to go to Baal, and God, who he should have actually asked them to go to, goes to Elijah and says, meet the messengers who are on their way to Baal and ask them this. Arise and go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron? Wow. Elijah then prophesies that Ahaziah will soon die. Ahaziah does not like this prophecy, so he sends 50 armed men to go get Elijah and bring Elijah. Elijah calls down fire from heaven, something he's got some experience doing, and he destroys those 50 men and they, their commander and they're burned alive. 
So the king sends another 50 to go get Elijah. Let's read that account in verses 11 through 12. Again, the king sent him. This is chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's orders. You come down quickly. Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. The fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So now we've got a hundred burned men, lives ruined, gone for ordering Elijah down. And what does the king do? Ahaziah, this is what Ahaziah does. He says, send another 50. And amazingly enough, another 50 go. Guess they had no other option. But this commander goes about it a little bit differently. He says to Elijah, would you please not kill us? I know you've already smoked a hundred others of the other... Uh, I could have picked a better uh, verb there. Another of my comrades, would you please come with us? And ironically, Elijah says, sure, I'll come. <laughs> Teaches you to just ask sometimes. Elijah goes. He goes to the king. The king says, I'm not happy with you. You've said I'm going to die. Elijah says, yes, sir. I want to let you know you're going to die. And guess what happens by the end of chapter 1 of Ahaziah? He's dead. Your insolence towards the Lord will cost you your life. And he's dead. So this is the opening act of 2 Kings. That's how this whole thing opens. And it gives you such a feel for what's going to happen. Here's three observations of this very opening act. And you're going to see this through 2 Kings. First thing, notice that Ahaziah does not denounce Yahweh outright. Nowhere does it say, I am no longer a follower of Yahweh. It's just that he fails to bank his trust in Yahweh. We know this because when he's sick, he doesn't go ask Yahweh for help. Instead, he does what? He goes and asks the God of Baal. So one, Yahweh's not explicitly rejected. Second, Notice that his sin is banking in someone other than Yahweh. Another observation is the Israelites sin by failing to bank their trust in Yahweh alone. They don't explicitly reject Him, they just fail to trust Him alone. And then thirdly, the Spirit is careful to demonstrate to us in this third point that the King and many of His men Treat the prophet of God as something they can manage, as someone they can manage. Now keep in mind, what does the prophet of God represent in the Old Testament? It represents the Word of God. So Israel, and in particular their king, feels like the Word of God is something that they can manage. Far from submitting to it, they believe they can tell it how it will work in their lives. The opening chapter closes with the prophet speaking, with the Word of God speaking, and with the very ones who tried to manage the Word of God, namely the king, dead. The Word of God will be submitted to one way or the other. So the third thing, the Israelites treated God's Word as something they can manage. They failed to treat it as transcendent, as above them. 
Chapter 2 is the incredible story of the, and you've probably seen this story many times, the army of God coming with chariots of horses and fire. Can't imagine that scene, would love to have been there. And Elijah going up to heaven. So this very one who in just a few chapters before in 1 Kings was down and out and was given encouragement in life when God spoke through a whirlwind was carried up himself to heaven. How? But by a whirlwind. And at this point, the, uh, pro- the prophetic ministry of Elijah culminates and it begins the ministry of Elisha. Chapter 3. Look with me if you'll turn just a little bit over to verse 1 in chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat of Judah... Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned twelve years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of, of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So here uh, we have Jehoram, who's the son of Ahab, become king of Samaria. In the next two, a few verses, we're told that those Moabites have really now begun to push uh, Israel. So Israel, instead of running to God, they instead run south and they go to Judah. And they also go to the Edomites, pagans. And they ask for help and they form this alliance. And so you got these three armies together who are going to go take care of the Moabites. And they don't even see the first Moabite before they are almost fully defeated because they got themselves lost. They had no food and they had no water and they're about ready to die. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, not Jehoram, the king of Israel, but Jehoshaphat at least had enough sense about him to say, I think we should go to Elisha. Let's read in verses 13 through 14 as we see this encounter. Elisha said to the king of Israel, so Elisha is now talking to Jehoram, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. King of Israel said to him, No, listen to this. This is amazing. This comes from the lips of Jehoram. No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hands of the Moabite. What is he saying? He's or to, in the hands of Moab. He's saying, God has called all of us together only to destroy us. Wow. And Elijah says, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, Were it not for the fact that I have some regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. So Jehoram, who did not think God was strong enough evidently to go to him and ask for help, now thinks God is provident enough to bring about their destruction by the Moabites. Now the interesting thing is, had it not been for the fact that they actually turned and went to Judah, maybe they uh, turned and went to Elijah, he might have been right. But this isn't uncommon, is it? How often is it that we don't bank our full trust on God, but things go wrong, and all of a sudden we are the very first ones to wag our fingers at heaven, as if, how could you do this? It's exactly what Jehoram and Jehoshaphat were doing there. Yet again, the people deserve to be wiped out instantly. 
And God, in the rest of chapter 3 you see this, is merciful. And He miraculously saves the people from the Moabites. They deserve full wiped out judgment. And instead, God is kind enough, merciful enough, to give them grace. It is the story of the Old Testament. Chapter 4 shows the miraculous ministry of Elisha. It is unbelievable. If you haven't read these chapters lately, go back and read, especially chapter 4. In verses 1-7, through God provides for a poor widow by giving her a bottomless jar of oil. In verses 8-17, through God provides by giving a childless couple a child. Then in verses 18 through 7 or through 37, Yahweh through Elisha raises that same child that he gave uh, to this couple who was dead. He now raises them and brings them back to life. The end of chapter 4 explains how God judged the land with a famine. And symbolically, Elijah, the land's in a famine. Elijah is surrounded by a group of prophets. And he tells them to brew a a pot of stew. And some of the prophets go out and they don't realize it, but they pick some poisonous herbs. So this would so be me. If you ask me to go out and pick something for some stew, I'm sure it'd be like poison ivy pot of it or something. Now that's exactly what they do. They have no idea. They're like, okay, that looks good. So they throw it in. Well, they realize that the pot has death in it. Man, this has some death in it. Elijah quickly saves this by throwing some flour in the pot and flour doesn't typically do this, but because of uh, the Lord intervening, it does and miraculously saves that stew from being life-taking and now being life-giving. And I believe that that story is a symbol for what it means for man's wisdom on its own. you got a group of prophets making a stew, and it's going to be deadly on its own. Man's wisdom on its own is destructive. It will not help. But when God's Word speaks, it changes things. And that which would be on its own life-taking becomes life-giving. Chapter 4 ends with Elijah feeding a hundred men with a man's meal. Now that might seem somewhat familiar to you, right? That's because you probably recall Jesus doing something very similar. And Jesus' miracles will be far grander because instead of feeding a hundred men with one man's meal, He's going to feed thousands with a child's meal on multiple occasions. Throughout the book of 2 Kings, you see these parallels between the the, uh, ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Jesus. Examples. Elijah provides a desperate for a desperate woman by allowing a jar of oil to never get empty. Jesus provides for a harlot by allowing her to empty her jar of perfume at His feet. In Luke 7, we see this. Both ministries of Jesus and Elijah, you, do you not see lepers healed? Yes, dead or raised. The comparison, though, is this. In every instance, the ministry of Jesus is far grander than the ministry of Elijah. We see that when Elijah in Acts, I mean, in uh, uh, Second, they, they feel, it feels like Acts a lot of times. But in Second Kings chapter 4, he causes an axe head to float, showing he has power over water. Well, Jesus obviously will show he has power over water, but far grander. He will 
with one word tell a storm to be quiet. And he himself will not just cause an axe head to float, but he will walk on top of the water. The comparisons are intended. As they show, by the time you get to Jesus' ministry, they show the fulfillment. That Jesus' work is the fulfillment of the ministry that God had started. That is, Jesus does not represent for us a new plan. He is the culmination, the fulfillment, the promised kept that was there from the very beginning. And unfortunately, Israel's response in the days of Jesus will look just like their response in the days of Elijah. They will see the Word of God. They will hear the Word of God. And they will openly reject it. Chapter 6, as we're moving through, God uses Elijah to protect the Israelites from the neighboring Syrians. Now the Syrians are going to come up over and over in this book in multiple ways. Here through Elijah, God delivers the king of Israel. So this happens. God literally delivers and it takes uh, just, you know, just a couple thousand chariots of angels. But He delivers to them uh, a whole group of soldiers to the king of Israel. King of Israel looks at him and says, so I'm going to slay him, right? And Elijah says, no, sir, you're going to feed him. And they feed him. Now that's going to seem to you at first ironic as you keep reading because it won't take much time. They get fed, they go back home, and just a little bit later they come back down, all in chapter 6, and now they have an entire army and they invade Israel. They hold them siege Israel has held siege so bad they get, they're starving to death. Literally, women are offering up their children to be eaten and they are eaten. That's how bad it is. So the king comes to Elijah and he asks what seems to be the obvious question if you're just reading through this. So let me get this straight. We had the, the Syrians right before us. We could slay them, but you tell us to feed them and now They're back and we're actually feeding off of our own children because we're starving. How could you do this? Elijah just kind of shakes his head. Chapter 7 is the story that within 24 hours, God not only has the Israelite, I mean the Syrians gone, but Israelite is enjoying one of the most massive feasts they'll ever have. You may recall that King Ahab from 1 Kings and his wife Jezebel, they were both very evil. Very evil. Well, chapter 8 ends with Israel and Judah in very desperate situations. See, here's what happens. The king of Israel, Jehoram, was a son of Ahab. And the king of Judah, Ahaziah, was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So in chapters 9 and 10, God raises up a young man by the name of Jehu, and he brings fulfillment of the promise he made in 1 Kings 21, and he wipes out the house of Ahab just as he had promised. And just like that, 70 men fall. God brings judgment. And you think to yourself, wow, we've got hope. We've got somebody who's who's destroying the house of Ahab. Maybe even uh, removing the bells. And then this is how chapter 10 ends. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Oh, wow, this looks great, you're thinking. 
But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. He left them. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to what to all that is in uh, your in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. This is the push of Second Kings 21. Partial obedience isn't obedience. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In chapters 11 through 14, the Israelites continue to be bullied by the Syrians who make them empty the treasure house of the temple uh, to, to, to pay them so that they won't actually conquer them. Elijah dies in these chapters. But you finally get a, bar, a bright spot. You finally get it in, Je- in Jehoash, uh, of the king of Judah, in 2 Kings 12, verse 2. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. So you got hope. We got a king who's finally going to do right. It's obviously not going to be in Israel, but in Judah. Don't get your hopes up too much. Just two chapters later, his son, chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places, they weren't removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So the story of 2 Kings is the story of God's people continually trusting in everything, everyone but God. There is rarely an explicit denouncing of God outright. Instead, it's just a lack of continually living their lives as if they honestly believe in the Word of God, banking on it. The results are perilous, especially when you consider this. Remember, how did they come into the land? By conquering all of the nations around them. And so now you have them in the land that they were promised being conquered by the other lands. And the only way that they're not fully conquered is they're having to honestly go into the temple and take all the goods and sell it. It's an explicit reversal of that which is promised. It is an explicit symbol of the perversion of sin. You know, if if you read the Bible carefully, let's say you had a reading project, you're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1, and and you're going to move your way all the way through, and I'm going to guess by the time you get to 2 Kings, you are going to be tempted to just put the book down in disgust. I mean, first of all, (laughs) the Bible would throw you a real killjoy three chapters in, right? I mean... 
The first two chapters of Genesis, you get God creating man and man's living in the garden. He's ruling over the garden. He's walking with God. He's enjoying the presence of God. And, and He's flourishing. And things are looking great. And then comes chapter 3 and all goes south in a hurry. Right? Man falls and everything changes. And then, as you read the next chapters of Genesis, the next eight chapters are about just as depressing. But then a drumbeat of hope kind of begins to pick up in Genesis 12. And out of nowhere, almost you would say ex nihilo, out of nothing, God calls Abraham in chapter 12. And you think, wow, maybe something's happening here. And he makes him a promise. And then you get to, by the time you get to the very first chapter of Exodus, this one man who was old and childless has now given birth to a nation. And you march through Exodus and you begin to see God calling them out. And, and a drumbeat of hope begins. It's not loud. It's not persistent. But there is this drumbeat of hope. And it's, it's picking up pace. And, and, and then you get into Joshua. And man, it starts to really get louder now. And it's picking up pace because you can see them in the promised land. You can see them conquering these nations around them. And, and if you sledge on through Joshua and you get on to 1 Kings, man, that drumbeat is starting to really pick it up. And you can really hear it. You can feel the hope as you have David. And now you've got Solomon by the time you get to Solomon, you get a temple. So you have the presence of God with His people. You have a land. You have prosperity. The drumbeat of hope is loud and the drumbeat is thumping. You can almost sense a new Eden. You can feel hope. Well, by the time you get to where we are in Second Kings, after all of that, you just want to take the book and throw it down and say, it's the same old thing. It's the same old thing. May I suggest that's by intention? See, the Old Testament, it's the story of two sons. It's the story of Adam and the story of Israel. Adam's story is done very quick in, in the Old Testament. Israel's will take the whole rest of the Old Testament. They are the story of men given the option to live in the presence of God and flourish and the story of those men willfully rejecting it. Both Adam and Israel openly turn their back on the Word of God. So how does the cycle end? Will the cycle end? Before we go further, let me ask you this honest question. Do you believe, honestly, you can be any different than Adam or Israel? Now just ask yourself that question right now. Do you believe that you're going to be any different than Adam or Israel? When you look at the pattern of how you respond to God's Word and His perfect commands, do you relate well with Adam and Israel? I have to tell you without a doubt, I see myself in Adam and Israel. 
I, as an onlooker, as a reader, reading of Adam and reading of the story of Israel, I get so frustrated with them. And yet the truth is, when I can be an honest onlooker to my own life, and that's rare, but it happens, I'm just as frustrated with myself. Because I see myself stubbornly reject the Word of God over and over. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are seeing your heart is similar to Adam and Israel, then let me tell you, praise God. The fact that you're seeing it means the Spirit of God is working. It's a testament to His mercy. It's an open admission that you are in a desperate situation and you need help. It's your admission that you are your biggest problem. Now, I can tell you, you are in the right place. (laughs) You can't even become a member of our church without openly and honestly admitting that you are one who has willfully rejected God. You can't even be a member of our church without honestly saying, I deserve the judgment of God in hell. You can't be a member of Cornerstone without thinking that. So if you're here and you're saying, I relate with Adam and Israel, let me tell you, you're in the right spot because you're with a bunch of people who relate well with Adam and Israel. That's how we got in here, right? I've often laughed that proud people in a church are as funny as a bunch of uh, people making fun of sick people in a hospital. Last time I checked, they don't let you stay if you're well. Sometimes they don't let you stay if you're not well, right? But, I mean, think about it. That's how you got in here. You're sick. Well, if you're tracking with me as we walked across the Old Testament, and at this point in the sermon, you're going, this is like the bad news bears. It's like Debbie Downer of all Debbie Downer sermons, Tim. Right? Well, it's the text. Um, you probably notice I skipped chapter 5. That was intentional. I want us to look at it together because people, it is a wonderful gift of God. So turn with me and look at chapter 5. It's such a sweet story. <laughs> I, if you know me, uh, you probably know I like to, when I prepare for sermons, I like to, I like loud music on. I, I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do or not. They didn't tell me to do that in seminary. They didn't tell me not to, so that's good. Um, so I like loud music. It's all types of music, right? So the other day I'm preparing and I got to Second Kings 5 and I'm working through this, reading it over and over. And uh, I, I, I guess I hit a point where the uh, got some soft piano music and I'm crying listening to this. I'm thinking, <laughs> I can't get through this thing. So I, I moved it to hip-hop and was able to get through it. So at some point, if I start crying, just cue some hip-hop up there and we'll move our, our way through this thing, okay? This is such a sweet story. Alright. First one. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man. <laughs> when the Bible tells you that, it means he's not. He's a great man with master and, and, and in high favor. Because by him, this is great, uh, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Oh, I love it. Alright. By him, Yahweh had given victory for Syria. So the Syrians are walking around going, yeah, we got something going here. 
A God they don't even believe in was handing them victory after victory. Man, that is the world scene. He was a mighty man of valor. Oh, he was a mighty man of valor. I love this sentence, comma. But he was a leper. You can't be a mighty man of valor long if you're a leper. Now the Syrians, one of their own, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Oh, would that my Lord were, the, were with the prophet who is in, in Samaria. That's Elisha. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord that would be the king of Syria. Thus and so spoke this girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he, so he went, and he took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothing. Okay, so, so we have Naaman who's a commander to the Syrians. That's the arch enemy in 2 Kings 1-14 through of Israel. It's not coincidence. He's rich, he's powerful, he's strong, but his flesh is literally eating him alive. He has leprosy. And it tells us that on one of his raids, he took a little girl from her family out of Israel and brought her as a slave to be with his, for his wife. So this little girl looks at the man who ripped her from her parents. Probably good chance slaughtered her parents before her own eyes. Just think about this. Took her out of her home and her land. Makes her become a slave to his wife. Now you're talking about a right to be bitter for the rest of your life. And this man gets leprosy? I don't know about you, but my prayer is, God's judgment, let it fall, man. Let him eat it quick and let it be horrible and let him go. And I'm going home. Listen to what it says. She looks at him and says, Oh man, if he could just get to Elijah, then Elijah would heal him. Then he could be healed. Unbelievable. Others are like talking about sharing the gospel. She has enough faith to believe that the only way he can get healing is if he gets to Yahweh. Folks, that's more faith than all of the kings of Israel because they don't even believe Yahweh can heal them. Remember chapter 1, the guy falls through a lattice and who does he call for help? The God of Baal. Unreal. So Naaman asked for a letter from the king of Syria and he heads towards Israel with gold and silver in his hand. He's got ten outfits. That kind of threw me. What, what's he need? What does he need to change your clothes for? Well, it means there it's, he's, it, it's what you give to another king. It's, it's a really, really extravagant gift. The gold and silver together would have been valued like two to three million dollars. He's a rich man. So Naaman, desperate and sick, comes proud as he can be. Ready to go to Israel and buy his healing. Oh boy. Verse 6. And he brought the letter of the king of Israel which read, When this letter reaches you, 
Know that I, this is from the king of Syria, Assyria, not Syriol, um, that I have sent you to Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when king of Israel reads this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to, to kill and make alive that this man sends me word to cure me, to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider, see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel gets the letter and cries like a baby. He's incredulous as to how this man may ever get healing in Israel. (laughs) So a servant girl sends Naaman, fully believing he can get healing. And the king of Israel, he gets the king of Israel, and the king of Israel has no idea how he's going to get healed. (laughs) Oh, verse 8. When Elijah, the man of God, heard the king of Israel torn his clothes... He said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know there's a prophet in Israel, that there's a word of God in Israel. You can almost hear Elijah rolling his eyes like, Come on, king, put your clothes back on. Send the man over. (laughs) Almost a sense of, let's not make a liar out of the little girl who has faith. Man, if you get how this culture thinks of children and how they think of females, there is judgment being read all over this text for the king of Israel at this moment. But we won't dive into all that. Verse 9. So Naaman came. I love the way it just builds it up. The word of God is amazing. With his horses and his chariots, he stood at the door of Elijah's house. Verse 10. (laughs) Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. Verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leopard. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in rage. Oh, what an interesting account. Elijah intentionally sends a messenger. He won't go himself. That's intentional. It's partially done to injure Naaman's pride for his own sake. And it does. But it's mostly done to make the point that when healing comes, it will not be through the hand of Elisha. It will not come from this man's money, which Elijah refuses to get anywhere near. It will come from God. Naaman has no category for this thing. None. He has in his mind that this prophet, he gives the prophet the payment, and the prophet does his thing, wave his hands, etc., and then he goes away, and days later, he will be, he'll be, things will begin clearing up. Elijah tells Naaman, you go to the, to the river Jordan and you dip seven times. Naaman hears him basically saying, you need to go bathe a lot. Naaman says, oh my gosh, you think I haven't bathed? You think I haven't tried bathing? I mean, I bathe in the rivers in Syria. If they're not going to cleanse me, what makes you think it'll be cleansed here in Israel? He is mad. He turns away in rage. Verse 13. Notice this man would have rejected God and died in his sin if it ends in verse 13. Verse 14. 
Sorry, verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's, it's actually a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Won't you do it? He's actually said to you, Wash and be clean. Thank God for good friends. Good friends always clarify the Word of God in your life. Poor friends always muddy it. Know that. A good friend clarifies God's Word. A poor friend muddies it. These are really good friends. They pick up something in Elijah's words, in the Word of God, that he missed. See, Naaman thought he heard, go take a bath and let's see if that helps. But that's not what the Word of God said. Instead, Elijah said, go bathe and you will be healed. Verse 14. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the Word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of of a little child. And he was clean. He goes and he dips seven times. And he comes up after that final seventh time. And it's not just that the leprosy is gone. His skin is brand new. He's completely healed. And we know because of the rest of the account, it doesn't just change Naaman physically. It changes him spiritually. He becomes a follower of Yahweh. We know this because he's already received healing. He has no more leprosy and he still has two to three million dollars in his pocket and the ten change of clothes. And so he could just walk back his way. But now he spends everything he has begging him to take the money. Begging him to take the money. Why? Because he's a follower of Yahweh now. He wants to give it over. Elijah won't have anything to do with it. His messenger, his servant, wants a little bit to do with it and it costs him his life. You can read the rest of that account in chapter 5. But we also know that he actually makes preparations to spend the rest of his life worshiping Yahweh because he asks Elijah. He says, can I take with me loads of dirt from Israel so when I go back, I can build an altar to Yahweh so that I can continue to worship God. As we close, consider a few things as you think of this encounter. First of all, centuries before Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, God hints that He will be making room for saving those who are outside ethnic Israel and are even the enemies of God. What an amazing picture. Why? Because the worst person He could have saved in Israel's eyes was Naaman. Second, healing will not come through human effort or earning. It will come by God's grace. Third, healing will come outside of us. Salvation will come outside of us. It's going to come through the cross. Friend, do you come here this morning like Adam? Like Israel? Like Naaman? Do you realize that on your own you are as hopeless as Naaman? Sure, maybe your flesh isn't eating your flesh, but the Bible says your soul is in much worse shape. 
The story of Naaman points to the cross of Christ. There God poured out His wrath on His Son, His perfect Son, so that in so doing, He would make a river of mercy, ready to heal the enemies of God so long as they submerge themselves fully and trust in it. God does not want your money. He doesn't want your church going. He does not want your good deeds. He doesn't want your time. He doesn't want your reputation. He doesn't even want necessarily your name on a church roll in order to save you. He wants you to humbly acknowledge that you are in need of healing and submerge yourself in the life of Christ and bank your life on Him. And you will never, ever be the same. Naaman walked to Israel, a great man with leprosy. And he walked home, a humble man who was healed. Any of us walking here as great men and women today? I pray that God would be kind that by His Spirit we would walk out humble and trust in Christ.